today we are going to continue our study in the book of Philippians, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians 3, please. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Philippians and we've seen that Paul's been arguing against a specific group of people called the Judaizers, who taught that one must add works of the law to faith in Christ in order to be saved. And Paul's been making a very powerful argument against the idea He's shown that if anybody had reason to trust in, in, uh, in advantages they've had as, uh, as a person, whether it be religiously or, or through race or any of those things, it was him. But in the end, those things that he once counted on as gain, he now counts as loss. Today, the, uh, the focus is, is going to shift a little bit. It's still going to be in that same vein as, as what he has been talking about. But the shift today, the focus today, is going to be about the value of knowing Christ. And, and the big picture that I want you to see is that the value of knowing Christ far surpasses the value of everything else. The value of knowing Christ far surpasses the value of everything else. So if you found uh, Philippians 3, please stand with, uh, with me as we begin to read in verse 7, and we will read down to verse 11. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Paul, the, the first thing that Paul tells us is that knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else. Knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else. If you'll begin uh, looking at verse 7 again, Paul talks about those things that he once counted as gain. And we looked at this last week. But he, he used to count on all kinds of things. It was, uh, he was, he was uh, religiously zealous. Uh, he had all kinds of privileges. He had, uh, he had uh, godly parents. He was of good stock. I mean, he was obedient to the law of God. He had all kinds of stuff going for him. But all those things that he was counting on to get him to heaven, he said, those things are all a loss to me. Those, those things I once saw as a positive, I now see as a negative. But more than that, if you look at, at uh, verse 8, it's not just the, the good things, those things that he counted as gain to him, but verse 8 says that he, uh, he counts... Uh, he, he counts all things as loss. Now, why does he count all things as loss? Well, if you look at verse 8, it's uh, for, the, for, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. See, it, it's not just that he counts them as loss, but if you look at verse 8, you'll see there's actually an intensification. He counts them as rubbish. Now, your Bible may read a little bit differently when it says rubbish. My translation says rubbish. Your translation may actually say dung. It may say uh, refuse, or it may say something similar to that. The word that's used here means that which is thrown out to the dogs. It's, it's that which is, uh, which is excrement. It's refuse. And Paul says that compared to knowing Christ, and this is an exper- experiential knowledge, all other things are garbage. Everything else in this world is worthless. And so there's an intensi- intensification because a loss is something that has value. Has anybody ever lost something valuable? Maybe it's a wedding ring. Maybe it's a TV remote. I mean, the really important stuff, if you lose it, there's a value there, and, and it, it kind of hurts, doesn't it? 
But if you'll notice, he, he doesn't just say that this stuff is a loss. He actually says that it's refuse. It's, it's rubbish. It's something that deserves to be thrown out and not even looked at. Now, when you, maybe you've, maybe you've lost a ring. Maybe you've lost some valuable uh, heirloom that's been passed down to you. You go hunting for that thing. But how many of you go out and maybe after you find it, you just kind of stand there and look at it? Boy, I sure am glad I found that. You get the TV remote that's somehow disappeared and you find it. And you just, oh, I'm so glad to have it back. How many of you, when you take the trash out, go out and look at that trash bag and say, man, that was some good trash right there. None of us, right? Because rubbish, refuse, this, this garbage is not valuable in the least. And so what Paul's saying is, if we were to hold anything in this world up next to Christ... Compared to him and knowing him, everything else is garbage. Everything else is worthless. It's not a loss. It's not, it's not valuable in, in the ultimate scheme of things. Now, why would he count these things as rubbish? Well, as I said before, these things that he was, were not necessarily things that he was trusting in, but they were things that, that, that sought a place in his heart alongside Jesus. And the point is, Paul had gotten to the place where he believed and he put into practice something that you would probably affirm in Sunday school that Jesus deserves the number one place in your life. We would all agree to that, right? Jesus deserves to be number one. We agree with that, but how many times do we fail to live that on a daily basis? Because what happens is we let all kinds of other things get into our lives, and we want Jesus and all this other stuff that, that, that we put on equal playing field with him. And so often we allow our job or our family or our religion or whatever else it is to have an equal place with Jesus in our hearts. And those things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but someone has well said, good things become bad things when they keep us from the best things. And so when, when we put something alongside Jesus, that's when there's a problem. And Paul said, I've counted, I've gotten to the point where I count all other things besides knowing Jesus in an experiential way. All other things are garbage in compared to that. Jesus deserves the number one spot in our life. So, so a, a, a point of application is, does he have that spot in your life? Do you set your affection on Christ? Do you seek to order your life around him and his teaching? Or do you have other things in your life that, that you set on equal plane with him? Now before we move on, I, I just want to highlight one last thing. Notice that Paul says that knowing Christ is far superior to everything else. Notice he does not say that knowing about Christ is far superior to everything else. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, knowing facts about Jesus, that's a good thing. You're able to kill it when you play Bible trivia? That's great. That's fun. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about being able to beat everybody at church at Bible trivia. Paul is talking about a real, vital, experiential knowledge of Christ. The question is, do you know Jesus in that way today? Not can you rattle off fascinating facts and figures about Jesus and Palestine, all these things, but do you have a real day-to-day -day relationship with him? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Do you love him and seek to please him in your choices and decisions? Or are you one of those folks that, that, that are kind of, kind of a, a trouble Baptist? What I mean is you call on Jesus when there's trouble. When, whenever there's a trouble that comes along, there's sickness, there's, there's a, a job situation, whatever it is, you call out to the Lord and that's about it. Paul says, no, your faith should be an everyday type of faith, not just when things are going bad. 
And, and, and if you don't know him in that way, and as, as a, a personal Savior and Lord, you can if you'll turn from your sin, if you'll repent and believe on him for salvation. So he says that knowing Christ is far superior in value to everything else. But next, verse 9, he says, he tells us the benefit of knowing Christ, and that is that knowing him is the source of true, true righteousness. Knowing Christ is the source of true righteousness. Look again at verse 9. Paul says, It may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, when we become Christians, our location changes. And I'm not talking geographically. But what I mean is when we trust God for salvation, apart from Christ, we're estranged from God. We're far off. We are, we are separated from God. But when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are brought near. The Bible says we are adopted into his family. We are joined with Christ. And what Paul says in verse 9, look very carefully at the beginning. He says that we are found in him. We are in Christ. And because of that, we have a foreign righteousness. So this righteousness, this right standing before God, our holiness, is not derived from the law. Because Paul said, uh, back in our text that we looked at last, last couple weeks, he says, according to, to works of the law, I was blameless. In other words, you look at Paul and you'd say, that man has it going on. That man is living a holy life. And Paul said, I was doing the things I was supposed to do. The problem is, it wasn't good enough. I was keeping the law. I was blameless. He couldn't look at me and said, that man has a, a life of sin and vice. I was, I was true all the way through. I was doing my best. I was living the law. I was, I was, I was doing a good job. But that's not enough. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, if so, there, there are some people who think, they will be made right before God by keeping the law. And Paul says in, in Galatians, if you're going to do that, you've got to keep the whole law and you've got to keep it perfectly. Now, how many of us have done that? Zero. I mean, you just think about the Ten Commandments. Just think about your actions and thoughts even today. How many of us have failed in just the Ten Commandments? Much less all the other stuff with loving your neighbor as yourself and so on and so forth. We've all failed in keeping the law of God. So our hope of having a righteousness that comes from the law is shot. There is no chance it's going to happen. Paul says if you're going to be righteous before God by keeping the law, you've got to do it all and you've got to do it perfectly because God's law is perfect and his standard's perfect. But when we're in Christ, we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, we've, we've looked at this more in depth in the past, but just briefly, Christ kept the law perfectly. He did what we can't do. He had an act of obedience. And so there were times in the New Testament and in the Gospels when he would do things, and, and the Pharisees especially would get real, they, their nose would get out of joint about things. And they'd start saying, oh, well, he's breaking the Sabbath, he's doing this, he's doing that, and they'd get real upset. And Jesus wasn't breaking the law. He was breaking their traditions they built up around the law. And so uh, Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly, which we cannot do. And when we put our faith in him, there's an exchange that's made. Our sin is exchanged for his righteousness. His perfect act of obedience to the law that he lived on this earth is credited to us. The Bible uses a, a word we don't usually use. It uses the word imputation. 
It's imputed to us. It's credited to us. So when God sees us, he sees us not through the lens of our own righteousness, because our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. But rather, he sees us through the lens of Christ's perfect obedience, through his righteousness. And, and all that happens, Paul says, through faith. So knowing Christ is the source of true righteousness. Now the last thing that he tells us is that knowing Christ has eternal benefits. Look again at verses 10 and 11. It says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now he gives us three benefits in our text. The first is that Christians experience the power of Christ's resurrection. Christians experience the power of Christ's resurrection. Now what in the world does that mean? Remember, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried on the third day, rose again. That's the resurrection. We're, we're familiar with that. Now, the, the Bible, when it presents, especially what Paul tells us, it presents it as uh, taking a great deal of power for that to happen. Now, that's not to say that it was difficult for God. Okay, so the resurrection, God wasn't up there sweating, saying, boy, I, this is tough for me to do because nothing's, nothing is impossible with God. But what I'm saying is it took a great exertion of power to bring the dead back to life. And that same power is what brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. One passage that speaks about this is Ephesians chapter 1, and there Paul says in verses 18 to 21, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of its power to us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So this same power that God exerted to to raise Jesus from physical death to physical life. It's the same power he uses to bring us as rebel sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. And since this is a present reality for us as God's people, because we experience it in the here and now, uh, it's it's a present power in that sense, but also there's a a daily victory that we can experience. Sometimes we, we get in our heads that we have to fight the devil on our own. How many times has that worked out for you? It doesn't work out too good, does it? Because the devil will come against us, he'll tempt us in some way, and, and we think we, we can just whoop the old devil ourselves, we don't have to rely on God. But that's, that's not going to work out because we struggle against sin, and we also have to, to wrestle against the flesh and the, and, and the world and all this stuff coming against us. But the same power that, that brought us to spiritual life is the same power that he empowers us with to have victory over Satan. And we can have certain victory if we'll plug in to the proper power source. We experience the power of his resurrection. Next, Paul speaks of experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. Now, there are certain things that Jesus experienced and suffered that are unique to him. You look at his death on the cross, and, and he wasn't the only one that's crucified. I mean, Rome crucified thousands of people. But, but there were certain aspects of him burying our sin and, and that, 
uh, uh, that uh, interaction that happened within the Godhead as, as he bore our sin and, and all that went on with that. We can't replicate that. We can't take part in that because that was unique to Christ. But there are certain sufferings and trials and persecutions that sometimes come our way because of who we are as God's people. And he, we, we're identified with him in, in that way. You remember Paul, whenever he was on the road to Damascus to find Christians to bring them back bound and, and put them to death, what did Jesus say to him? He said, Paul, or Saul, 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 why are you persecuting the Christians, right? He said, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? There's an identification there of Christ with his people. And, and Paul was fully prepared to join in those things. And, and he did join in them. In, in writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives a summary of things that happened to him. He spoke of imprisonments. He said he was beaten three times. He was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I've spent the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Whew. Can we honestly say that we're prepared to do any of that? Most of us is absolutely not. But he said, I'm, I'm prepared to experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And finally, Paul speaks of one last benefit, and that is, in, in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection from the dead. Now, it's interesting because Paul does not use the usual term for resurrection in this, in this verse 11. He talks about experiencing the resurrection from the dead. He actually uses a word for resurrection that is only used here and nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a compound word that literally means partial resurrection out from among other corpses. Literally, the word means an out-resurrection. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying, boy, I sure hope I get to experience the resurrection. Oh, I'm just so worried. I, I, might, I might miss it. I just hope, I, I hope we get there. That's not what Paul's saying. The Bible is very clear that everybody's going to experience resurrection, both the just and the unjust. Jesus said in John 5 that some will experience a resurrection of life, others will experience a resurrection of judgment. I, I'm inclined to think, it's, it's not 100% clear what Paul has in mind here. I'm inclined to think he's talking about uh, uh, seeking to have that resurrection of life. Others think he's talking about uh, some extra glory that martyrs may experience in the resurrection. Uh, either, either way, Paul is talking about a blessed hope that there remains for the, for the people of God in the resurrection. And as you think about your own future, I wonder, do you have that hope? Do you look forward to the day when you will be resurrected? I mean, think about that. Do you look forward to standing before God and hopefully hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you look forward in anticipation to a new and a glorious body? No more pain. It's glorious like Jesus's. Are you confident to stand before God, not on the basis of your own righteousness, but on the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ? What he has done on our behalf, not what we have done. 
As Paul says, those of us who are in Christ, we have no reason to fear the, fear the future because in Christ, Paul says in the book of Romans, there's therefore no condemnation. If you're in Christ, you are not condemned. You're not going to hell. We have no reason to fear the future. We've been raised to spiritual life, and we can daily experience victory over sin. We are credited with the righteousness of Christ. The question is, has that happened to you? Do you know him in that way? Not do you know about him, not have you come to church, not, not have you spent your life in church and been to Sunday school and, and taking communion and, and been baptized and all these things. You can, tell, you can write a book about the things you know about Jesus. I mean, do you know him in an experiential, saving, life-giving, sin-forgiving way? Because if not, you can if you'll trust Christ for your salvation, you will be saved. And friend, one day, you and I will stand before God. And the question that, that we need to ask ourselves is this. When you do that, how will you meet Him? Understand with me as musicians come. As you stand, I ask you bow your heads and close your eyes. Just in the quiet of this time, I just want you to consider what Paul said. Paul said, those things that he counted as gain, he counted as loss, and not just those, but all things. It's not just count them as loss, he counted them as rubbish, garbage, worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Probably most everybody here would say they wish they had that kind of a relationship with Jesus. Ask him to draw you closer to himself. Draw closer yourself. Put forth those those efforts to get closer to him. Maybe you're facing some kind of a, a difficulty, a trial. Paul says we experience the power of this resurrection. We have victory over sin. We have his sufficient grace. Bear up under whatever it is. Father, God, we thank you that you didn't just save us and, and wish us the best of luck, but you save us, you draw us to yourself, you empower us, you forgive us, you give us spiritual life when, when we are spiritually dead. You adopt us into your family, you give us a, take out a heart of stone, you give us a heart of flesh, you change our desires. You empower us to do the good works that you've called us to do. So at the end of the day, we don't have anything to boast about because salvation, good works, 
all the things that we do, we can give glory to you. God, I ask that you'd help each of us today to to trust you more for uh, not just for our salvation, but for daily life. Help us to rely on you. God, if there's somebody that's undergoing some sort of a a difficult time in their lives, I pray that you would uh, bear them up with your strength. Help us as we face our, our, uh, our, our temptations, our struggles. Help us to rely on you for the victory. God, if there's anybody here who does not know you, in that saving way, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and let them become your child today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What song?